Hello, and welcome to the IQT Podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special BNEC series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan George. I'm a vice president at Be Next, which is the biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, uh, Caitlin Rivers, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Center of Health Security. Uh, Caitlin, it's great to have you on the, the podcast again. Hi, good to be with you. Yeah. Today, we're joined on the podcast by a good friend and one of the leading researchers who is building operational forecasting capabilities in collaboration with public health agencies, Dr. Nick Reich. Nick received his Ph.D. in biostatistics from Johns Hopkins, where he also did a postdoc in infectious disease epidemiology. Nick has a long list of publications on infectious diseases, epidemiology and forecasting. Nick was gracious enough, or I might say a bit foolish enough, to be a co-organizer of a workshop on thinking about forecasting, infrastructure, and technology needed to transform uh, forecasting capabilities. Uh, we convened a, a wonderful group of, of colleagues, uh, and Caitlin actually was involved in this too. And ultimately, we all published a piece in the Nature Communications called um, Technology to Advance Infectious Disease Forecasting for Outbreak Management. Also, Nick has been pivotal in coordinating something called the CDC Flu Site Network. This is a multi-institution consortium of uh, forecasting teams that have worked over the past few years to create a public, real-time collaborative uh, ensemble forecasting model that provides updated forecasts of influenza in the United States each week. Um, Nick has taken those experiences and applied them to COVID-19. Starting in late March, his team created the COVID-19 Forecast Hub, which is funded by CDC and aggregates weekly forecasts from over 20 research groups from around the globe. These forecasts are published on the CDC uh, website weekly, uh, and um, they've been viewed over a million times. These data are also used by 538. COVID-19 forecast tracker site, which is a, a pretty good endorsement in and of itself. Um, Nick has been a trusted colleague for many years, and it's wonderful to have you on the co- on the podcast. Nick, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Nick, I think to start out, we'd like to hear the origin story. What's your background? How did you come to be involved in infectious disease modeling? What should we know? So, Let's see. I guess I'll start by saying that I've always been drawn towards problems that have this combination of operational and 
statistical challenges in them that sort of working with real data to solve real world problems. I think as you could ask any of my grad school professors and they would be the first to tell you that I'm not a methodologist at heart, um, but that somebody who really wants to see good systems in place in two weeks. Yeah, completely um, so, so, you know, I think um, for flu where we have many years of historical data, um, the modeling, I think, has shown pretty consistently that we can bring to bear modeling techniques using the data we have to to add value above and beyond very simple, naive models. Um, and for COVID-19, we're still figuring this out. I think we don't um, you know, we have so much less data to be using as inputs to the models and also quite a bit less data on the track record of these models. You know, a lot of these models have just been running for one, two, maybe three months. Um, but a lot of their models have been changing really quickly because people are updating their models to account for new dynamics of the disease. Um, so it's just uh, it's a really changing landscape. I think what we're finding is that some very simple models for COVID-19 have shown pretty consistent improvement over um, over like a very naive reference model. Um, but honestly, only a few of those models are are really showing consistent benefits over over just kind of predicting what's happened in the last few weeks and extending that into the future. And speaking of COVID, CDC Director Robert Redfield tweets about the infrastructure that your team has built and that is now integrated into the CDC website. What's that been like for you to see your products and your efforts and your research really influence the way that we think about our outbreak? Well, it's a combination of... Uh, being really terrified by all the eyes that are on, on, on this work <laughs> and, um, and being, uh, you know, proud of the team that has worked really tirelessly hard over the last few months to put this together. Um, um, and I, I think also sort of, um, you know, vindicated is not quite the right word, but just sort of feeling proud that this work is that people are sort of seeing the benefits of this work in a way that we've been talking about for years, but nobody really pays attention when it's seasonal flu. Um, but now when it's such a important societal piece, people are paying attention and finding value in it. And that that's, you know, gratifying. It is not the right word because it's such tragic. It's such tragic data all the time. Um, but but it's it still at least feels good in some in some morbid way to have to be feeling like we can contribute to this conversation in a way that is useful and helps people plan better. I think a lot of public health professionals can relate to that mix of sentiments right now. Yeah, it's a somebody somebody's described it to me as like it's just, it, that it's just like PTSD a little bit. You're just sort of always looking at data about people being sick and really sick and dying. And it's a, it's, it's, it wears on you. Yeah, it really does. Um, just turning back briefly to where you see the field going, what do you see as the next steps for transforming forecasting capabilities, improving skill? Like if you had a magic wand, what would you want to do to advance this field? So in my mind, 
the most important thing that we're missing right now is better data. I think we have at the moment more than enough modeling and algorithmic and analytical tools and capacity at our disposal to use the data we have, you know, compared to, you know, the data that comes out of public health systems is, uh, is not super high resolution. You have data, you have case counts from maybe the county level or maybe state level or maybe counts of people who die, um, or maybe counts, you know, maybe results from testing sites. But these are, you know, you compare it to like, some of these challenges that you see in deep learning competitions where you're analyzing millions of images, each one with all these millions of pixels in it. And the, the quantity of data is in our current systems is not yet sort of big data with a capital B. And, um, and I think the more that we can shift the paradigm of what data is available for public health into having more high resolution real time data that's collected in consistent ways across as many sort of jurisdictions as possible across as many different healthcare systems as possible that's what's going to make the modeling better is to have sort of consistent and accurate data streams about who who's getting infected, who's going to see the doctor, who's being hospitalized and for what. And the the degree to which these systems are spread out and not centralized in the U.S. is really um, is really detrimental to modeling efforts at the moment. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that, that this has been a common refrain of over uh, a range of folks that we've been talking to is that we've, I think we all definitely agree that we need to improve the quantity and quality of data that is available in public health because data are so critical to guiding the responses. And, um, I think we're, many people are only starting to come to that realization on a broader, on a broader scale right now. Yeah, I really, I just see it as, far and away the most important challenge that we have. And, you know, in the U.S. faces sort of unique challenges in this role globally. I mean, it's such a big country. We have such a tradition of states having their own their own systems um, of sort of having, you know, states rights sort of things. So I think that makes it harder compared to a lot of other countries that, um that are have a more sort of centralized and federal system. So um, following up on this question, though, with from Caitlin, though, too, it's like I think we uh, data is definitely something that needs to be worked through and, and thought through more effectively. Um, what would be kind of like your second um, uh, kind of issue that you would try to tackle uh, if you did have the data? Um, what would be the next bottleneck that you would you think you'd experience? In, so my answer to this question is really informed by my personal experience in these, in sort of working in these real time collaborative efforts to build better, better forecasting model, models, both with flu and now recently for COVID-19. Um, and you know, the, the biggest challenges here are 
developing some standards for how people report their forecasts and that because that makes it easier to compare compare forecasts and get a sense of is forecast A better than forecast B well if they're in completely different formats it's going to take some very a lot of somebody's time to get them into a way that you can compare them to each other um let alone combine them into a single ensemble model so once again i don't think from a methodological perspective i don't think there's i don't think we're lacking the technology or the machine learning or the AI to do this. We have, we have those techniques available and it's just a matter of applying them carefully, but thinking through the ways to facilitate these collaborative efforts to really facilitate the collaboration. I think that's like, that's a really important thing to be thinking about and, and doing carefully. Yeah, you know, I, I do want to give you like a, a bit of a tip of the hat on this particular point because I know that you and some of our colleagues in the CDC have been working very hard at trying to come up with ways of standardizing reporting. And in fact, Caitlin has just has a new report out on this particular topic as well, this new, new publication on that. Um, and it, it reminds me of back in, uh, during, uh, H1N1 in 2009, um, when you had modelers coming out of the woodwork to try to help out, similar to what we have right now, but to a much more chaotic impact. The CDC was much less well prepared to accept and understand the range of models and what they were doing. And there wasn't a systemic way of actually comparing the models across one another and what they were doing, even let alone knowing the differences between a forecasting model versus a a what if model? Well, to be quite honest, there weren't really forecasting models back then, but um, it created a lot of analysis paralysis within the CDC, and uh, much of that work was disregarded because of that. And so the importance that you're highlighting here of being able to compare among models so that you can actually combine them together into ensembles is a, is is not as straightforward as you would think. But because of the great work that you and some of our colleagues in the CDC have been putting into this, I think it's much easier now than it ever has been. Yeah, and I mean, they deserve so much credit, I think, for for building this vision of collaborative forecasting for, I think it's been maybe about eight years now. I think the first time that they that at the CDC, they organized a, a flu forecasting challenge. I think it was in maybe 2003, 2004. Um, and it's been running every year since. And this has been the vision that they have had, I think, is that we, you could sort of be leveraging all, all the sort of innovation and cutting edge methodology and having different teams from academia and industry working together towards a common goal and then pooling all those models together to really get the best signal that that you can out of out of all of these models. And I think without their leadership in this for the last eight years, yep. we would Completely we would agree. we would just like not be anywhere close to having models that Redfield would feel good about tweeting about. Absolutely. Um, I, I yeah. completely agree that they've they've socialized and helped their um, public health colleagues fully understand the, the power and the limitations of what could be done with these types of models so that they can have a much more intuitive sense of how to use them uh, in decision making. Yeah. And I think also directed the academic community in a way that, you know, it could be a constructive relationship because that didn't really exist in that way before. Completely yeah, agree. I, 
Yeah, I agree too. I also, I wanted to mention, so a year, a year and a half ago in September of 2018, I guess they had the CDC ran a pandemic simulation exercise. And I was one of three modelers who was on site in Atlanta for this agency wide pandemic simulation. And, um, I, and it was, it was super fascinating to be on the ground there as they were going through this, uh, this sort of alternate universe where there was a, a outbreak of a new flu strain that had emerged in China on a sort of international tour out in the, in the country. And then it had sort of spread throughout the, um, was sort of spreading throughout the world in real time. And, and over the course of three days, all these people from the agency were participating in different aspects of the simulation. There were some, some modeling going on. There were real sort of, uh, sort of mock press conferences. Um, and everybody from the IT people at CDC to the director himself were sort of participating in this. And in some ways, I wasn't surprised to see Redfield tweeting out about our forecasting models because as part of that, sim- as part of that simulation exercise back in 2018, he was presented with forecast with sort of these hypothetical forecasts of this fake outbreak that was that was going on. And and he was asking intelligent questions about um, about them and sort of everybody was thinking about how do we incorporate this into decision making about what policies to recommend and so on. So, you know, this has been part of their longer term plan. And I think but really pushed by a core group of of folks at CDC. That's such an interesting yeah. example of how building these relationships over time can really be so helpful in the setting of an emergency. Um, and be- but before we want to before we let you go, I want to ask what you're thinking right now about the U.S. outbreak, which is currently not headed in the right direction. Do you have any major recommendations or guidance for what you think that the country should be doing? Well, I can try to answer that question. I've really, I've tried really hard to keep my head down and just try to do good science and stay, stay a, away from making big policy pronouncements or getting involved in the, the partisan politics, which I think has unfortunately started to sort of infect some of our response. Um, you know, my feeling is that the most important thing is that the, federal government and the state government and local governments work together to get, well, let me, let me answer this from a modeling perspective first, and then I'll maybe answer from a general perspective. But I think, I think the more that, that we, that the governments at all different levels can work together to get high resolution, real time data into the hands of skilled data analysts who have experience modeling public health surveillance data, I think the better we will have modeling results that can help inform the public health response. And unfortunately, I, I think this is something that even if it feels like we aren't making good progress on now, it's it's worth because this is going to be going on for, I think, unfortunately, many more months. I think it's worth starting, even if we feel like we've done it all wrong for the first six months. I don't think it's too late to restart, rethink how we're doing things and try to get things back on the right on the right foot. Um, you know, from the broader perspective, I think it's just, uh, you know, with taking off the modeling hat and just thinking about it more, more clearly, I think, I think we can hold out hope that things could at some point 
be brought back under control because they have been in so many places that have had really bad outbreaks. Um, you know, you look at Italy, you look at Spain, you look at the first outbreak in some places in the U.S. and it takes time and it happens slowly, but it does come back under control eventually when we all work together and do all the things that we know we're supposed to do to bring it back under control. And thanks for that. I really resonates and I would love to hear more voices like yours or you in particular um, sharing your wisdom because I think it's so important. Uh, I think last question here, what are you all working on next? What's keeping you busy these days? Well, so the, the big project that my group, my team has been working on over the last, um, over the last six months has been this COVID forecast, COVID-19 forecast hub that, as Dylan mentioned in the intro, is sort of feeding data to CDC and feeding data to sort of mass media outlets to help try to give these these sort of accurate short term forecasts and get them out into the into the world. Um, the main thing that we're trying to do with that project right now is just for the last two weeks, we've been collecting forecasts of confirmed and probable cases at the county level. So before this, we had just been doing state and national level. Um, but based on requests from CDC, we've started trying to work at the county level with the hopes that we could inform some of the ongoing vaccine trial designs by helping them figure out where, which counties or which metropolitan areas are likely to have to see a lot of cases. Because if we don't decide where to launch these vaccine trials, if we make bad, bad decisions about where to start those vaccine trials, um, then we might not have good conclusive answers about vaccines as fast as we could have had. So it's really important to get these vaccine trials launched in the right places where we're going to see a lot of cases, because that's what's going to help us determine and have a really good good estimates of how effective these vaccine candidates are. Nick, I was really very pleased to hear that you are actually um, you and the CDC and our colleagues at HHS are trying to use forecasting in that capacity. I mean, when I was uh, in HHS in 2014 and 2015, um, some of the modelers um, and the, the great um, analytical team that was there at the time had developed some uh, forecasting capabilities for the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And we're using those kinds of insights from those forecasting models to inform the clinical trial designs for the Ebola vaccine as well. And it really, albeit that with the, fortunately, the incidence levels dropped to the point where um, we didn't have to worry about it as much, um, it did significantly impact the way people were thinking about the different types of designs um, and locations of designs that were used for those clinical trials. And so I think this is a really um, very powerful use of these kinds of approaches. And so wish you the best of luck in being able to push that forward because that's uh, a critical use and a very important use to get us to an answer much more quickly. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can get these data to the hands of people who can use them to make good decisions and hopefully get us a usable vaccine sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Well, well, Nick, you know, if people are interested in learning more about you or about your research, how would they go about getting a hold of you? 
So the best thing to do to learn more about my research lab at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, um, the best thing to do is just to go to our lab website, which is reichlab.io. So that's R-E-I-C-H-L-A-B.io. Um, or the COVID-19 Forecast Hub has its own website, and that's just all of that put together, COVID-19ForecastHub.org. Super. Uh, you know, uh, Nick, as always, it's a pleasure talking with you. I always learn um, great things when I talk to you. And so thank you for taking the time to tell us more about your research and insights and how you've been working to help with uh, uh, with COVID-19. Uh, Nick, really thank you for being with us. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dylan. And thank you, Caitlin. Your Both of your perspectives and voices in this crisis have been really uh, invaluable sources of calmness and reason. So thank you both as well. Caitlin, as always, wonderful to be with you. Thanks so much. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Be safe, be healthy, be kind. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting Series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on BeNext, visit www.benext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessing and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>